Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Foreign Policy. This is the ER, our weekly podcast, and I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's deputy editor for print. Our April print edition is titled The End of Human Rights, and it had a great cast of contributors. Today, I'm speaking with two of them to get a behind-the-scenes look at some of our most fascinating stories. We're going to journey from the Amazon in Brazil to the Russian city of Vladivostok. My first guest today is reporter Cleuside Oliveira. She's written about an ongoing battle over, wait for it, permitted infanticide in Brazil. Well-meaning legislators and indigenous rights activists are arguing over whether Amazonian tribes remote Amazonian tribes, have the right to kill their own children. To be clear, this story is about a right to kill. That is the right to kill children who won't survive in the jungle's harsh environment. Let's be clear, it's a tough story, but it has important ramifications. We don't want to be killed over something we're born with. We want to live. The voice you just heard, the one speaking in Portuguese, was Kanyu Haka, a member of the Camayura indigenous tribe of Brazil, testifying before Brazilian lawmakers in May 2017. Kanyu has progressive muscular dystrophy and left the Amazon at age seven because she feared for her life. Cleusi, thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell me about when you first learned about this issue and what drew you to it? Thank you for having me, Sarah. Um, so I first learned about this through uh, talk of this legislation that's up for a vote in the Senate. It's called Muaji Law. And Muaji is a woman, an indigenous woman from the Suruwaha tribe who in 2005 got out of the tribe through, you know, a long backstory. Um, she was removed from her very isolated tribe because she didn't want to go through with killing her or abandoning to die her daughter, who had cerebral palsy. Her and another family both had children that were slated to die, so to speak. And the fact that they were removed this way set off a chain reaction that actually got this uh, this story in front of the media. And this was the very first time in Brazil in 2005 that this conversation even began. When I first saw your pitch, I was both fascinated and also frankly, shocked, I mean, on some level shocked, even though, you know, and perhaps it's a Western response. But the idea that that infanticide is ever practiced as part of a cultural tradition was something completely new to me. When Muaji's law or Muaji's case came before the Brazilian public, was it similarly shocking? It was very shocking. And this was this was 13 years ago now. And I've spoken to a lot of human rights lawyers and both on both sides of the debate. You know, a lot of them have told me that this was just not a conversation that was had, even in academic papers in Brazil, about this happening in the present day before 2005. 
And it was such a big deal. I mean, the story came out in this program called Fantastico, which is a it's a weekly news program in prime time on Sunday nights. So it really kind of rattled the Brazilian psyche, so to speak. And it really it divided people because we obviously in Brazil, I assume it's similar to the United States. Our history of colonialism is also uh, just very tied up with a, a history of religion. And uh, there was a lot of kind of missionary uh, attempts and attempts to proselytize to indigenous peoples here in Brazil in our history. And in many cases, that was extremely destructive of their way of life. So the fact that um, this was being brought up for the very first time by missionary groups rubbed certain people the wrong way. So it was, it was just very hard to kind of... Uh, for people to wrap their, their heads around. When you say that, it's not simply that, you know, people had responses like mine. They read the newspaper and thought, oh, my, or, you know, you know hand, to, hand to their chest with a, a sort of shock. You write that in a public rebuke to the bill, the Brazilian Association of Anthropology compared it to, quote, the most repressive and lethal actions ever perpetrated against the indigenous peoples of the Americas, which were unfailingly justified through appeals to noble causes, humanitarian values, and universal principles. That's a huge condemnation. Yeah, it is. It has to do with a great deal of suspicion of a missionary project in general, mm -hmm. right? There's a couple called Marcia and Edson Suzuki, and they have really been at the forefront of this conversation. And the reason for that is because they were for decades living among this very isolated tribe called the Suruaha, which I mentioned earlier. They were both there to, you know, do language studies because they're both linguists. And they were also bringing some new ideas to these indigenous tribes. This tribe has a very strong tradition, for instance, of suicide, and they try to discourage them from committing suicide. And in the process of them living with them, they came across situations in which children were slated to be killed or to be left in the jungle to die. There's a very specific case that you actually narrate, and maybe you can tell the story of, a, there's a very specific case of a girl who was her parents killed themselves rather than murder her or, or bury her and her sibling alive. And she was kept alive by a brother. Maybe you can narrate that story. Yeah, absolutely. That's Hakani. And that's one of the first cases even that preceded the national attention to this issue. So Marcia and Edson Suzuki were living with the Suruaha. And there was this couple there that had, I believe it, at the time, was three children. And two of them didn't seem to be developing properly. What Marcia told me through interviews is that at certain points, the tribe started to pressure the parents to do something about it. Because children who you know, have some sort of disability are condemned to die. The case of this couple was, say, unusual or more a bigger dilemma because these children were already fairly grown. Um, they were around two, three years old when the rest of the tribe and the parents noticed that they were starting to develop. They, they just weren't developing properly. And in Marcia's telling, these parents, in order to not go through with killing these two children, they themselves committed suicide, which should be uh, pointed out that in this tribe, it's very common. It's usually the preferred form of death is suicide. And the tribe buried the, the two children alive, which is often how both in the Suruaha and other tribes as well is how the death occurs. And one of the, the boy died, but the young girl survived the ordeal. 
And she was kept alive by her older brother, who was still very young. He was about seven years old. And for about two years or so, she just survived on scraps of food. And uh, the the rest of the tribe would just kind of ignore her, slowly kind of waiting for her to die. And it was only after two or so years that the little brother deposited this young girl who was almost dead on the Suzuki's feet. And Masa told me that she thought the young girl was dead, but they checked for a heartbeat. She still had a heartbeat. After a long protracted period of trying to get the government to remove this child out of the jungle and get medical treatment for them, for her, the Suzuki's took her out themselves. They nursed her back to health and found out that she had hypothyroidism, which is treatable. It's incurable, but it's treatable. And then they took her back to show that, you know, this is something that can that can be treated. It doesn't necess- necessitate a killing. Um, but nobody in the tribe wanted to take care of her because, you know, her, her parents weren't around. And it's, it's a very harsh environment. So the Suzuki's went on to adopt her. But one of the things that happened was that they brought her back and they showed her to the tribe. And they, they, the state was not happy with them for doing that, for showing an alternative exactly, path. Exactly, exactly. And this is where you have these kind of battling ideas uh, about what should be done. And in an anthropological report that was put together by, by, the, by the public prosecutor's office to convince the government to get them kicked out, the anthropologist working for the government said that it was unacceptable that they had brought her back because they had introduced this new idea that was outside of the Suruaha cosmology. So in so many words, they were saying that, you know, by showing, by showing these indigenous people that there's something could be done about the fact that this girl had an illness was bad because they wouldn't be able to just solve it the way they've always solved it, which was by killing the child. These are individual cases, but there actually is this bill that has been working its way through the houses of the Brazilian government for the last decade. I mean, it was introduced in 2007, it sounds like. And you say it immediately introduced tensions between Brazilians who champion universal human rights, which prioritizes the individual, and those who support cultural relativism, which favors the freedom of communities to organize themselves according to their own moral codes. Why has it taken 11 years, first of all, and and how much attention is being paid in Brazilian society to this? I believe that it's taken this long because the bill itself has met with an enormous amount of opposition. And that's why it's kind of been dragged for so long. A lot of groups and interest groups have kind of put a stop to it and had it changed. And there's just been a lot of discussion behind the scenes over this bill. I'm not sure there's ever been a very truly in-depth research done on the topic here in Brazil, because there, while there are occasionally, I'd say about once every two years when the bill goes up for, you know, a vote or a, a review, there will be a flurry of articles about it online uh, or in magazines and newspapers. But to this day, you know, the, the government doesn't publish any figures on how many, how prevalent this is. You know, the organizations that work with indigenous people, they will not uh, monitor the situation, but also say that the bill shouldn't pass because they don't have any reliable data on it. And and you do discuss that. I mean, one thing is the the entire population of indigenous people 
compared to the population of, of Brazil is is quite small, one half of 1% of the total population of Brazil. So just shy of 900,000 indigenous compared to 191 million Brazilians. I mean, one anthropologist you spoke to who wasn't authorized to speak on behalf of the organization he works for said he had heard stories about child killing and, and he found them to be difficult. But he said, you know, the, the jungle is a harsh environment. But at the beginning, you actually narrate that it's not only children born in this context. It's also, to some degree, superstition. Women with twins are targeted. The woman that you focus on at the very beginning, Kanyu, who has progressive muscular dystrophy and now uses a wheelchair, she's quite articulate. She wants to pursue higher education. She's become a forceful and effective advocate for intervening. When I started researching this topic, you know, I... I was looking at specific cases and everything, and then uh, there was a congressional hearing last year, and I got the transcript for it, and I was just so blown away by her testimony, Kanyu, because she spoke there. And the way she was saying it was, you know, this is, of course, people people say on the left, people, anthropologists, people who really care about indigenous people, they don't want any interruption. They don't want any invasion into these tribes. And so they'll say, you know, we have to respect them. It's their culture. Let them take care of themselves. But what she said at this congressional hearings, it was like, you know, I want to live. I want to be alive and I'm happy to have been alive. So what are you, what is everybody that cares about indigenous issues also doing for me as a disabled woman who was slated for death? You know, in her case too, is her parents were the ones who sought outside help from the Suzuki's because they knew that their daughter had kind of started to show she wasn't developing properly around five years old. And her parents were so scared about, you know, feeling pressure from the rest of the tribe to do something about it, that they actually hid her inside the place where they slept for two years. So she didn't see any sunlight for two years while the parents were trying to figure out how they could either get out of the tribe or, or just find a way to get their daughter to be alive and have a good life. Cleo, see, this story is is so, so difficult and so fascinating, and it really challenges our questions of what is a human right, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought it to us. With me has been Cleuse de Oliveira, and her story is in the April 2018 print edition on the right to kill. Thank you so much, Cleuse. Thank you, Sarah. Up next, we have Amy Ferris-Rotman, who traveled from Moscow all the way out east to Vladivostok to see why Me Too skipped Russia for her piece, Putin's War on Women. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So Amy wrote about Russia's decriminalization of domestic violence in February of 2017. And Amy, I want to talk to you a little bit about this and how it fits in with a masculinized Russia and how it fits together with how the Me Too movement, which, as you and I both know, has really swept much of the world this year since October, since the Harvey Weinstein scandals broke. And so many women have been kind of assessing sexual everything from sexual harassment to sexual violence. But in Russia, it hadn't taken hold. And and we connected in this story, you connect it to this legislation, which decriminalized domestic violence. First of all, just explain to us exactly what happened and what the impact of that change in the law has been. So what we 
we saw was in February of last year, in 2017, we saw the results of a month-long campaign by conservative lawmakers in Russian government who were pushing to decriminalize domestic violence, um, that is, violence against family members um, and people you live with, including children. And what we saw in February 2017 was Putin, uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, signed off on it, uh, making it law immediately. And while this was uh, a huge, um, it, it, had, it didn't have an immediate impact in the sense that domestic violence is already rife in Russia. It's already a massive problem. At least 12,000 women are believed to die at the hands of their partners every year. But what it did do was it sent a very powerful signal from the very, very top of government, the most powerful man in Russia and one of the most powerful men in the world, that it was okay to beat up your partner. And in almost all of the cases, most of the cases, there's men beating women. So that, that's what we saw happen. And since then, police, some government officials and women's rights activists, and as well as lawyers defending victims of domestic violence, have actually said the changes in the law have actually led to an increase in cases, which I suppose is not surprising at all, considering the government effectively okayed it. And I want to point out that in, in Amy's piece, she talks about the penal code has changed. So the abuse that doesn't result in a broken bone and doesn't happen more than once a year is no longer punishable by long prison sentences. In fact, mostly they're sort of very minor fines and maybe, a, a, you know, 10 to 15 day stints in jail or community service work, which obviously doesn't seem to be nearly the deterrent it might once have been. And this passed by an enormous uh, majority. Right. I mean, this was passed by 380 in favor. Um, that's members of Russian parliament, lower house, um, to three who were against it. Just three people voted against it. Obviously, there were lots of abstentions. I speak to a lawmaker in the piece who actually couldn't face the vote. She knew it was going to pass, and she didn't even shop that day. She told me she felt physically ill because she didn't want to look into the eyes of her fellow colleagues and lawmakers because she knew that they were going to pass this law. And so, essentially, what's happened is, um, yeah, it's, it, it's taken effect and it has dire consequences. The more women are having to flee, having to find refuge. Also, the government doesn't have a lot of refuge shelters available to them. The church has stepped in. We've seen NGOs step in. But there's, there's way too much need for what is available. It's, it's an absolutely dire situation. And you speak to a woman who runs an organization called Sale of Hope, which is based in Vladivostok, but she oversees 10 crisis centers. Can you tell me a little about about her? So she was a very interesting character in the sense that she works for the government, but it was very clear that she didn't want to be seen as critical of the government, but she was also extremely pained by the changes to legislation because obviously she was already beginning to see the effects and what it meant in the shelters that she oversees. She oversees 10 shelters across an extremely large region in terms of space, but it's practically empty, except, well, compared to the rest of Russia, except for Vladivostok, which, of course, is a big affluent city. And she was extremely worried because she said it suddenly became a lot harder for her, for her colleagues working across these centers to actually see what kind of abuse has been going on to detect what kind of abuse has been going on because that's the most cruel thing about this legislation is 
No, it has all of these details about, um, you know, how, how much of a beating one is allowed to receive or allowed to administer before being categorized as a crime. What it does do is it opens up a huge gray area and police as well as lawyers, are not as readily able or willing or have the financial interest in pursuing certain cases which they think may fit into this gray area. So maybe, yes, maybe the new legislation says you can't have any lasting damage, i.e. a broken bone. Uh, but that means you can get pretty beaten up um, very regularly and have your hair torn out and be, you know, having to require stitches even and also having an enormous amount of psychological abuse. And you, you do speak to a woman named Oksana Pushkina, and she actually does want to write new legislation. And how, how likely is that to happen? And what would that legislation look like? So essentially, Russia is currently lacking an actual law against domestic violence specifically. Obviously, it has a law, you know, which again, an assault, but it doesn't have something specifically targeting domestic violence. What she would like to do, Pushkina and a group of other women, is to create a brand new law. Um, so instead of trying to go back and forth on the changes to legislature, which the Russians have just done, they actually want a brand new sparkling law, which is against domestic violence, full stop. You know, we talk a bit in this story, you talk a bit about how actually women's rights in Russia, I mean, the, the idea of feminism in Russia was not something that had ever really taken hold, in part because Soviet history seemed, I don't know, it's not, not not exactly not to need it, but that feminism itself seemed a Western concept. And also many of the rights that Western feminists were advocating for, especially in the early part of the 20th century and second half of the 20th century, in the Soviet era, Russian women seemed to have. That's something, it's yes, a strange paradox um, and a strange kind of weird reverse surreal situation, which a lot of people are not aware of in the early Soviets and the Bolsheviks were decades and ahead of us in the West. And so, and I'm talking about abortion, which was legalized and, and made sure that it was and available to all women. That happened in 1920. So, I mean, really decades, half a century before we had it in the UK and the US. And they were also given voting rights ahead of everyone else, universal suffrage. And so I think for a lot of Russian women, they grew up in an environment where they sent a woman to space before anyone else. They had these votes, these, these rights in place before anyone else, and they, they, they were very aware of it, and it was very normal for them as well. And so for them, a feminist movement to come in the 90s um, and the 2000s, which of course has come from the West, they saw it as a way of uh, a not yet another way of the West trying to tell Russians how to live and to tell Russians that they were not living as well as, they, as their Western counterparts were. They saw this as offensive. And that, in a nutshell, is, is why the feminist movement did, did not take off in Russia, the, the feminist movement as we have it in the West. But in the current incarnation of Russia under uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, there has been an association with the state with masculinity in some way. And and that seems to have shifted something. And and you sort of talk about this in terms of why Me Too itself, uh, the stories, have not latched on or to public consciousness the way that they have in other parts of the world. And you describe a, a handful of people who have actually – described either rape or 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 other stories and have been ridiculed over social media or worse. Can you look at this a little bit and tell me why you think that Me Too doesn't take off? Yes, I mean, I think 
a lot of why Me Too didn't take off in Russia is because of the environment that modern Russia is living in. There's an extremely macho leader, uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, he's known for being bare-chested in the West and going out and, you know, um, saving tigers and this sort of thing. Um, and that image is also cultivated very much at home in Russia. He is seen as a very strong masculine leader. Old-fashioned gender roles are very much in place in Russia and have been encouraged under Putin's rule. And we've also seen this coincide with the rise of the Russian Orthodox Church, an extremely conservative uh, conservative organization, which is trying to roll back women's rights at the moment, is totally against the rights of LGBT people. That's what we're seeing in Russia. That's the current environment. And it's worth noting that um, Putin's, I mean, it's, it's macho populism, uh, if you can call it that. And uh, we're seeing it in other parts of the world, notably in the United States with President Trump. So, I mean, Putin is not alone in this. He is, he is part of um, what I would say is a, is a global trend, but, which fits nicely into his idea of restoring Russian greatness on the world stage, having a very strong army, and of course, having this powerful church to back it all up. Amy, do you have any hopeful thoughts? I mean, you talk at one point at the very, uh, towards the end of the story, uh, about actually a somewhat nascent movement among particularly millennials in Moscow and St. Petersburg, who are organizing in some respects, at least over social media, to protest some of these, some of these changes and, and also some very specific cases. I do have some hope. I mean, I've been coming to Russia um, for 18 years and uh, living in Russia as an adult on and off since the year 2000. And for the first time, I've actually heard Russians use the word feminist in a positive tone. And I've met loads of young women. It must be said that they're very young. Uh, they're millennials, um, and they're mostly in the big cities, like you say, in Moscow and Petersburg. But they say they're feminists, and they talk about feminists feminist policies needing to be introduced and they talk about the need to reform the government and give women more rights and to, to prevent violence. So, so yes, I, I actually do have hope. I was pleasantly surprised in a way when I was reporting on this piece to see this massive change in, in the 18 years that I've been going to Russia. Well, that's a good place to end. Amy Ferris Rotman's piece on why Me Too skipped Russia is in our April 2018 print edition of Foreign Policy. Amy, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bosted. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.